Okay, Anna, what kind of exposure have you had to classical or symphonic music? Actually, a good amount, Felix. I don't doubt it. You're well-rounded. Well, I don't know that I'm well-rounded. My parents are both huge classical music people. And we all know Mylita, you know, she sings in her very dramatic and perhaps slightly classical-leaning way. And my other grandma was actually a concert violinist. That's our automatic, like, the perception that Latin music is this one thing. Like, my Latino music growing up in many ways was classical. That's great, because this week we're going to talk to a classical or symphonic music composer. A very cool classical composer. I mean, not your typical, like, I think we all have our idea of uh, the image of the classical composer, and it does not include someone with... Very cool pink hair and blue nails, like our guest this week. <laughs> it's actually purple hair, and it belongs to Angelica Negron, a composer, musician from Puerto Rico, from San Juan. Felix, you've been all jazzed about Angelica for a while. I feel like jazzed, jazzed in classical. You're jazzed. <laughs> I feel like you kept talking about her. I had no idea who she was because, like I said, I, I grew up with some classical music. Not exactly what I spend most of my time listening to these days. Then I went to this incredible concert. I came back talking all about it to you, Felix, at Disney Hall with the LA Phil, Canton Resistencia. And that was the first time I was inducted into her world, into her work. She is extremely talented. And she is also a member and vocalist of the genre-bending band Balloon. Now, we've had Balloon on the tiny desk. We've had Balloon at uh, South by Southwest. So she's got this dual career going, but when you think about it, not really because creatives are creatives. Whether she's traveling around the United States having her pieces performed in concert halls by symphonies, chamber orchestras, etc., or she's, you know, at a small club somewhere in Brooklyn playing with Balloon. Angelica Negron, I think, is one of the major artists of this generation in any genre. We had a great time learning about her life and about the status of classical music within Latin communities. I'm glad you finally got to have your moment with Angelica. And I must say, after that concert and after this interview, I'm totally on board now. And I'm completely confident that after everyone hears this interview, they will be too. Puerto Rico is known for a lot of different types of music, but classical isn't one of them, right? Symphonic music isn't one of them. Right. So who were your role models? How did you even know what a composer was, and how did you decide to take that route without the yeah. emotional or physical support network? I came to composing kind of late in my early 20s. A lot of it was through film music. I was, As I was studying violin in the conservatory in Puerto Rico, I was also doing another degree and film in the University of Puerto Rico, mm. which is where I met actually a lot of my friends and Balloon Band members was at the university. Through film, I discovered 
living composer. So a lot of like Almodovar's film, I fell in love with um, Alberto Iglesias, who writes a lot of the music for, for Almodovar's film. Also Fellini's scores, Nina Rota, classic duos of like Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann. I just became really obsessed with that and then started seeing that there was this whole catalog and repertoire of contemporary maybe not living composers, but more like contemporary repertoire that sounded more exciting and something that I could connect to. I was also listening to a lot of Bjork. Bjork had this album with Brodsky Quartet, and then through Brodsky Quartet, I discovered Kronos, and then Philip Glass and Steve Reich, and it was just kind of like everything started to come together, but nothing was coming from the conservatory. I love how you like through this journey you're like almost seeking out the living in a way. You were like, okay, so I started with these super dead composers and now you're like slowly like trying to find those contemporary sounds and then eventually it's almost like you found the true life of your music not necessarily within the classical space like you sought out inspiration and a way to build your own living composition using other music as well that's really fascinating and I'm curious about if you feel as though being Puerto Rican, growing up on the island, living around all of this life-giving music, if that, you think, influenced the way that you compose now? I think definitely my musical life in the conservatory was rich, but at the same time, very limited to uh, the music of people that did not look like me. But then around me, my family was making music. My neighbors were making music. I grew up in Carolina, which is also the birthplace of reggaeton. So that's been surrounding me for for many, many years and all the diversity of of like my mom's and my dad's, just the things that they were listening to. So I'm an 80s kid. So like um, just as a teenager, getting into like CD player with the booklet of the album, that experience (laughs) of like really obsessing over something and then like being like, oh, I really don't want to listen to Ricky Martin or Olga Tañón, they don't get me. I, I'm going to listen to Tori Amos and Bjork and, and Beck. And, and just, so I think all those things and being also in Puerto Rico, not like none of those people would go there to play, which was another thing. I think my obsession with listening also had to do with that, that it was not very casual. Like, yeah, I can just go and see them. It was just like, it seems so inaccessible and so distant that all I had was that physical object or, and that listening experience. So... I think all of that, in a way, has really shaped what I create now, particularly because I've been outside of the island for the past 15 years, too. So that also creates a different relationship. A branch weighted with pears, a brittle crack of dawn light, a broken clock, a Where do you live now? I live in Bushwick in Brooklyn, in New York. And it's funny enough, it's very similar to Carolina. (laughs) In in what way? Because I was just going to ask, how do you maintain your sense of Boricua? You know, even though it's it's not hard to do in New York. I'll I'll give you that. (laughs) Okay. There's something almost abrasive about the soundscape in Carolina that it also is very true here. I'm very sensitive to sounds and particularly don't like like loud motorcycles and and fireworks and things like that. And that's very much a part of Carolina living and also Bushwick living. So it's it's a weird thing now to something that I'm really sensitive to and that brings me anxiety 
now also brings a weird sense of comfort and place because it's familiar. That aversion to and comfort that you find in those abrasive sounds, is that something we can hear in your composition? Like, is that something you try to incorporate or turn away from? Yeah, I think there's a tension there. Sometimes the diaspora experience is as simple as nostalgia or as looking back at a place or a person as something that you long for. Oftentimes, at least from my experience, it's way more layered and complicated than that. There is that kind of like push and pull from the island, this kind of search for home, this longing. But at the same time, when I'm in Puerto Rico, then being like, oh, right, this is like what it is living here. Or then when I'm back, <laughs> complaining about that. So it's this, it, I think it's what you can hear in my music. It's, I think, sometimes that tension in a sense that sometimes it manifests musically in a, in a way that I'm trying to unpack that or I'm also playing with that. Like sometimes I, there's like piece I have that has like a bass line that is supposed to sound like reggaeton, but from a distance playing in a car. <laughs> Wow. So kind of having fun with those things of like, it's the abstraction of something through the lens of something else. So it's again, this comfort that it's there and it's present, but also don't put it so loud or in my face. It has to be at a distance. So sound is for me, at least a much better way to explore those things than words. Words are hard. <laughs> So cool. It's like, it's almost like composing the classical landscape. It gives you the opportunity to like finally do with those sounds what you would ultimately want to do with them. Taking them in and, and having them be a part of who you are and your experience, but like on your own terms. That's really interesting. I think for a long time, I really struggled with embracing that as part of my creativity and my output. Because even when I was in Puerto Rico and I was starting to be a composer, it Obviously, there's not a lot of Latinas there's and, and also not a lot of women. And so even in Puerto Rico, I was the only woman in the department at that time when I started. And then a few others joined. Actually, Cani Garcia, <laughs> a few years later, was one <laughs> in the composition really? department. Yes. Uh, yeah. Shout wow. out to, to... That's when I'm like, the island is truly <laughs> so small. Shout out to <laughs> Macani. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, there was all, always this need to kind of prove myself as a capital C composer. Like, I can do this. I belong in the space. I think for a long time, I tried to make my music sound like the way I thought people, um, what not wanted me to sound, but what else I was hearing in that field and not really embracing the parts of my identity that are unique to who I am. And, and that has to do a lot with my identity as a Puerto Rican, my identity also as a musician making electronic music with my closest friends and my love for experimental pop and melodies and for unusual instruments and sounds from the environment. So all those things that I was kind of trying to keep separate. <laughs>
We'll be back with more from Angelica Negron right after this break. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm, the 2022 lead sponsor of NPR Music. When NPR Music was born in 2007, few people guessed it would help launch countless new artists, build a global audience, and showcase the hugely popular Tiny Desk Concerts. For the past three years, State Farm has been NPR Music's lead sponsor, and now they're proud to support a celebration of 15 years of NPR Music with events at 930 Club in Washington, D.C. on November 28th and 29th. Both nights will feature performances from NPR favorites and the chance to discover new artists. And NPR Music will be streaming both nights live on their YouTube channel so you can watch and dance along from home. Each event will also feature a special surprise guest. And after revealing their identity, you can keep the discovery going by heading to statefarm.com. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Call or go to statefarm.com to get a quote. Let's talk a little bit about the experience of, like Anna mentioned at the beginning, that your composition that was performed at Disney Hall during the Noche de Resistencia, the, the very, very big, popular orchestra. I thought it was significant in that they had all of these names of vocalists, the top vocalists that we've covered on the show that are out there in Latin music, singing protest songs, and they included one of your compositions. I was so delighted to see that. Talk us through a night like that. The real estate for living composers and orchestral programming is still pretty small, but there are orchestras that are making a huge difference in that, like the LA Philharmonic. And they programmed my piece that week in a few concerts, three evenings. Two were more traditional classical concerts. And this one, Canto en Resistencia, was with uh, a lot of really amazing singer-songwriters. Uh, Ile was there too, which was so great to to reconnect with her. She was actually my student when I was teaching in the conservatory a long oh time ago. I'm like, who didn't go to this conservatory? <laughs> yes. Did Bad Bunny go to this conservatory too? No, sadly, no. <laughs> oh, I wish. But but Ila was a, a fantastic young composer when I was teaching there. But anyways, this evening was just my music and conversation with this other incredible singers and also this legendary, really important historic protest songs from Latin America. And the audience was unlike anything I've experienced in a classical music concert, um, which is still something I struggle with. It's just the whole codes of conduct in those spaces are for me very, just a lot of the times uninviting. And if I like something and I want to <laughs> applaud, I, I don't want to be thinking that I need to keep my quiet until the whole symphony is over because you don't clap between movements. I really don't get that. And it was so refreshing to be in a mostly young audience, but also also actually just all ages, but also a lot of, of Latinx folks that were excited about music and that didn't also had an encounter orchestral music that sounded like my music. It was really special. I think sometimes I feel pressure to when I'm invited to those programs to have a piece that has a specific, it could be political or social standing or something that, that has a message. And it's very liberating to be invited in those spaces just for what you write and not because you're checking boxes or because you're writing something that has to do with your identity. And I wrote a piece about a plant that I used to play with as a child called Morivivi, mm -hmm. the touch me not plan that you would touch and then it would shrink. I allowed myself to be simple. And even if it was a massive medium of such a big orchestra, but just that 
possibility that I could be in that space and that I didn't have to change anything about myself. And my mom was there too, which made it even better. <laughs> you talk about, I think you called it representing the multiplicity of your identity or something beautiful like that. I'm probably messing it up. But is there a part of you that is, like you said, you you know, you incorporate some beats of reggaeton, but like you want to have it in the background in the car feeling like it's distant and, and incorporating some of the things, but in your way and at your speed. And is there ever in something that you feel that's like a pressure to incorporate those things more visibly or do you include sounds or experiences that are not your own? Like, do you want to just be like, I'm Angelica and I'm making my music the way that it feels right to me? I did struggle with that. I joke with some friends that sometimes commissioners or organizations think that I write a piece and then I just throw adobo on the score. <laughs> and it's like, there we go. Because <laughs> um, so, sometimes there is that pressure to perform my Latinidad, right? Because I'm the only one there, oftentimes. And then, I mean, I, I'm really drawn to humor and I think almost humor as a form of resistance too. And I love finding ways to be reverent about it and play with that. I have a piece called Turistas that is inspired by a scene by Mariela Pavón, um, who's also known as Checking Mela. She's a wonderful illustrator and comedian from Puerto Rico. She's famous for her horoscopes. But she has this scene called Turistas that is all stories that when she was working in a lobby in a hotel in El San Juan, things that the tourists told her. Questions <laughs> about her, about Puerto Rico, just... It says so much about our colonial relationship with the U.S. And then I wrote a piece that's inspired by that, that also shows the images as the musicians are playing. But it is, it has parts that in the score, it says, like, you're trying to dance with two left feet. It's <laughs> like playing with the idea of like reversing the gaze for me and finding opportunities to do that feels like a way. And I also like in that one sample, uh, something from Sesame Street that Los Planeros de la 21, but through Sesame Street, so for American audiences. I can't help who I am, you know, I'm a woman and I'm Latina, but that's those are two parts of my identity and there are many other things to it. I love finding ways to play with that in a way that's not like spoon feeding it to people because I, I don't like underestimating audiences. I think people always find entry points and connections and if you trust them. Mm-hmm. And see, I was, that's what I was going to ask you about, because I think that sometimes when it comes to, to orchestral or classical music, I think a lot of times, a lot of people, not just Latinos, but they sort of uh, self-edit themselves out because they don't hear anything of themselves in the genre of the music. And I think that uh, mm. years ago, I was fortunate, and not just because we're on NPR, but this is what happened. I was able to come across an NPR series probably in the 80s. It was all about the history of classical music in Latin America, dealing with Carlos Chavez in Mexico, Hinastera in Mexico, Villalobos in Brazil, you know, even a feature on Pablo Casals, the great cellist. It was mind-opening for me because then I was able to see, well, there is a place for me in this stuff where I thought it was just mostly old, dead white guys. And I think yeah. that that's the majority of the people have that same idea. So when they see your name in a program, maybe that's bringing more people out, maybe. I don't... What do you think? I hope so. I mean, I think for me, it's also really important for people to know that there is a place for us there too. Like it, there isn't anything, you know, like just that you can think of the most niche thing and there is a place for us. But I think systemically we have been conditioned to think that there is not 
or we've been pushed out of those spaces. So I think there's like even more work to be done because then you have to be like, no, 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 come, <laughs> you know, you're invited here. And you can also find something here that you like and that you don't like. I, it's the same thing, right, with film and, and with representation. It's like, I want it so that it's not the pressure of like everything we make needs to be great. I want it to be a really crappy horror movie done by a Latin American <laughs> director. And I want that specificity in it. And then the great ones, just like what we have and anything else. It's tricky because there's a lot of barriers to access, especially in classical music. And there are a lot of, of structures of power that, that don't make it easy. I think there are orchestras and organizations that are doing work to change that. And it's really important. But then at the same time, I want to see it across music education, for example, too. Mm -hmm. Like there's this initiative, yeah. posters of black composers, of women composers that they're doing. I remember once walking into a first grade classroom in Orlando. I was doing a residency with the Orlando Philharmonic a wonderful organization. I was doing some community outreach and we we're gonna make music with this first graders. All these students, most of them had moved out of Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And we we're gonna make soundscapes inspired by the island. And when I walked in the classroom, Puerto Rican teacher also, amazing teacher, the classroom was plastered by these white faces. And that's telling them without us knowing, right? <laughs> Um, or being so aware of it that those are the composers, right? And then I'm walking into a space just one time because I don't see them weekly or daily. And then I'm like, you can be a composer. <laughs> Let's do it. You know, it takes a lot of undoing of the past too, because everything else is telling us we don't belong there. I think more initiatives that really are aware of those things and how we can shake those structures up so that we are unapologetically occupying those spaces and asserting our place. Because that's also going to bring more people to the concert hall because they want to see themselves in the music. They want to hear their stories in the music, too. I wonder, too, like if in some ways, and, and I'm curious, honestly, what you think about this, if it's some of it is a modification of what that entry point is or what even we see like the legacy of classical music as because it's like, yeah, you could look at it and be like, it's Beethoven, it's Bach, it's all of these things. Or I think about when I listen to like Juan Gabriel playing to a live audience and he has the whole, you know, choral arrangement in the back and the big symphonic noises. I'm like, classical music in many ways, like mm -hmm. my family's from Mexico feels distinctly Mexican to me in some ways. Like I hear that big grand kind of like sound and, and occupying those spaces. And I'm like, that's a distinctly Latino thing mm -hmm. to be that like yep. fuerte with your music. What more melodramatic thing than an orchestra, right? <laughs> That's exactly. our thing. <laughs> That's our thing. Yeah. I mentioned it during the interview, but I really am super grateful that I stumbled upon this NPR series years and years and years ago about classical music and symphonic music in Latin America, because I honestly did not know any of this. And as we discussed, I think the more people that know, the more that they'll see a place for themselves in this music, whether it's music by Latin American composers are just the popular canon. And, you know, I think that all of this really feels consistent with what we talk about all the time, right? Where it's like Latin music is so diverse and so expansive. And 
it's not really about convincing other people about that. It's, it's about convincing our own community, right? Because we get locked into the boxes just as much as other people would like us to be. Like we convince ourselves that Latin music or Latinx music or whatever you want to call it is limited to what the perception of it is. And so I think it's so important. Like people like Angelica are really actively every single day working against that idea, right? Like they're actively being like, no, this music is our music as much as anything else is. One of the many things I related to in our conversation was specifically about the conventions that exist within the classical music sphere. I once went to a concert featuring the guitar concerto from Joaquin Rodrigo called Concerto de Aranjuez, which is what Miles Davis's sketches of Spain is built on. So when it starts, da-da-da, right? I'm in the concert hall and it goes, da-da-da. And I went, yes. Six people turned around and looked at me <laughs> like, shh. You know, I thought it was at a jazz show, right? I was like, oh my God, I forgot. That's right. We got to be cool here. But I love that idea that she says of when Latinos come to the concert hall, they're loud. We're loud. Mm -hmm. We are appreciative. Mm -hmm. I think that that makes it more of a folk music, that it really is, and not something that belongs in a museum or a specific concert hall. It's really something that comes from street level, from the people, from us. I'm in Disney Hall and I'm hearing people yelling, cantando, gritando, like they're at like a concert that's totally different, listening to mariachi, I don't even know. And it just felt right. I think to have us occupying that space and us championing this music, like that made it feel like the most vibrant, alive and magical thing ever. And hopefully they're doing the same thing as they listen to this podcast, because that's the end of the podcast for this week. Our editor is the great Hazel Sills. Our audio editor is Ron Scalzo. Our production assistant, Fee O'Reilly. The person who keeps us very much on track is Grace Chung. And I get to say it this week, the Jefe-in-Chief, <laughs> Keith Jenkins, VP of NPR Music and Visuals. You have been listening to All Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. I'm Ana Maria Sayer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>